Welcome to Feminist Popcorn, the celebration and growing archive of the greatest movies about women. I'm Samantha Rare, here with my co-host Elizabeth Frankel, and it is Christmas, which could only mean that it is time for the I'm So Cold Jack epic winter Titanic spectacular. Oh, I wanted you to keep going. Oh. (laughs) We're here. We're here to talk about Titanic. Titanic. The greatest movie ever made? Question mark? (laughs) Does anyone question that? I can't believe we're doing an episode on Titanic. I'm shocked. (laughs) I'm shocked, but also it's like what we say about endings for movies. Shocking, but inevitable, I would say. Mm, I like that. (laughs) So to spill our pudding right now... (laughs) We uh we had another episode planned for this week and realized as we were re-watching the movies in preparation that two of the three movies that we had planned on talking about turned out to be not as feminist as we remember. <laughs> right. Which is a shame. Which is a real shame, but that's They're great movies. That's that's the nature of the beast. Yeah. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to learn about feminism with every single movie we watch. I feel like every week, every episode we do, I gain understanding about what feminism means to me. So that means that as we go forward, things change. Yeah. And we knew we wanted to talk about Titanic at some point. <laughs> and then I realized, what a better time to talk about Titanic than Christmas. Right. You got to unpack that a little bit because that doesn't really make any sense. To anyone. I feel like the winter holidays is when I tend to watch the most like big epic movies. A lot of the time you're snowed in. Yeah. You spend a lot of time on the couch. I don't really watch a lot of Christmas movies. So Mm. around the Christmas holidays, I watch movies like this. Sure. I agree. And also this time of year is about comfort movies and movies that you're familiar with and movies that you can watch with your family. Movies that everyone has seen a million times. So you don't have to like figure out which new movie you're going to watch together. You can just watch a movie that everyone is on the same page about. They know they like. Right. I think it really is a family movie. Certainly in my family, my relationship to the movie is growing up watching it over and over again with my mom. Me too. And I feel like different people have different ways that they watch this movie. It's on TV all the time. Mm. So whenever it's on TV, I usually, you know, tune in for the first half or so and then I turn it off around the midway point because (laughs) I don't feel like being in a bad mood for the rest of the day. We'll definitely unpack the relationship between act one and act two of this movie. Yeah. But I also feel like Titanic has this reputation that either you agree that it's the greatest movie ever made... Or you think it's overrated. Mm -hmm. And I mean, at least at the time that it was made, it was the most expensive film ever made. Right. So in that respect, I want to give indie movies a little more credit, you know, that like you can make a spectacular movie on a budget. But we at least are here to say that it is just as good as it ever was. (laughs) Maybe even better. Yeah. It's aged so well. I just want to comment on my complete subjective relationship to this 
this movie that I love it so, so, so yeah. deeply. And I have loved it so deeply for so long in also a very specific way. I want to give a shout out to one of our best friends in the whole world, Nicole Gelman, with whom I watched this movie, I think once a month for like four oh. years of college. <laughs> It was just on our rotation. If we were home around in our apartment, this movie would just naturally come on. We sort of did it without even thinking. We would just put it on without even noticing and it would just always be on. So I think that's another thing that movies can really give you is you can associate movies with memories and with relationships and with moments in your life. As much as I love Titanic in a vacuum for being this incredible piece of storytelling, I also love it because of Nicole. I love it because of all this other stuff in my life. Absolutely. Hi, Nicole. Hi. And I think the movie does carry that sort of like ubiquitous nature in honestly like human culture. Like everyone in the world knows this movie. Yeah. I know it's funny. We said last week that Mean Girls was our most popular movie and now we're immediately topping <laughs> that with doing truly the most popular movie ever made in the history yeah. of the world. <laughs> and in terms of it being a Christmas movie, I just realized... <laughs> Um, it's so not a Christmas movie. Hold on. So one of the Christmas movies that I've spent my entire life watching, again, with my mom, is Love Actually. Sure. Which, you know, say what you will about that movie, we're not going to unpack it here. <laughs> but there's an amazing scene in that movie when Liam Neeson's character, oh in my order God, to yeah. bond with his stepson, suggests that they watch Titanic together. That's so funny. I did not remember that. Maybe that's why I think of it as a Christmas movie. But I think it's just, like, sort of in similar ways as, like, It's a Wonderful Life mm. or A Christmas Carol, you know? It has the same kind of emphasis on what it means to be human and what it means to live a life of meaning. So Titanic came out in theaters in 1997. It was written and directed by James Cameron, and it stars Kate Winslet as Rose and Leonardo DiCaprio as Jack. So Titanic was nominated for a total of 14 Academy Awards. Oh my god. Which tied All About Eve for the most nominations ever. Of those, it won 11, which tied Ben-Hur for the most one ever. It was the first film to make a billion dollars in sales and was the highest grossing film of all time until it was beat in 2010 by... Avatar! Exactly. Wow. So, uh, congratulations, James Cameron. <laughs> uh, yeah. Also, we won't talk about it on this podcast, but I know Avatar is kind of divisive for people. People yeah. either love it or think it's overrated. I think Avatar is amazing. <laughs> if for no other reason than the spectacle is just earth shattering. It's sure. so beautiful watching that movie. Yeah. I think I saw it twice in IMAX because I was oh. so overwhelmed by how beautiful it was. I saw it on a laptop. <laughs> And therefore I was underwhelmed. Sure. That was the whole thing. He like invented a whole new kind of 3D for the movie. I mean, you and I are so obsessed with theater that feels both emotionally and visually immersive. Yeah. I was on another planet. How incredible is that? And in Titanic, like we're on a ship, we're on a sinking ship. And I think that's why Titanic is so successful because James Cameron, I think even above the story, 
far above the story, probably, was most concerned about the historical accuracy, Mm. the detail, the physical detail of the ship. Everything was perfect. Well, let's get into that because it's very funny and ironic to me that he has made it very clear in interviews that making the movie was really the afterthought. He just wanted to go down and explore Titanic. (laughs) So the movie was the afterthought. And then it sort of sounds like the story was the afterthought to the movie, which is the part that you and I take very seriously. Like that's the part that really resonates with a lot of audience members who love this movie. (laughs) So that's just very ironic that that was sort of two degrees removed from what he said was his priority. Right. (laughs) The legend is he wanted to explore the wreckage of the ship. Right. So he proposed this movie to the producers as Romeo and Juliet aboard the Titanic. Which is amazing. I mean, Mm -hmm. as source material, like, how much better can it get? Yeah, totally. I think that's a huge reason why the film is so good. Mm. He even structured the story in almost the exact same way as Romeo and Juliet. Mm. You get the prologue at the very beginning that tells you exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. The ship is going to go down. This is how it's going to happen. You even see an animated video of it happening. Mm -hmm. And then we meet the two lovers. We completely forget it's a tragedy. (laughs) We enjoy this romance for half of the film. Yeah. And then suddenly the tragedy hits and it is a tragedy. Yeah. But in that comparison, you're making it sound like the ship is the tragedy, not this affair. And that's really awesome, I think. Hmm. You know, like the prologue that establishes what's going to happen is in reference to the ship sinking, not in terms of their relationship. Right. So really the love affair of this movie is the ship. It's not Jack and Rose. At least the way that the prologue establishes it. Although we're still on the edge of our seats wondering if they're going to survive. We know Rose is going to survive, but we don't know about Jack. We don't know if they live happily ever after or not. I gotta say, and again, we'll, we'll get into this when we get to act two, but I am such like a victim to suspension of disbelief. There were so many times in this last viewing that I was like, is Rose going to live? Right. I am so, so scared for her as if I don't know that she survives. Right. So we've already mentioned this dichotomy between Act 1 and Act 2. That's probably going to be what the bulk of this episode is about. Yeah. When I told my boyfriend that we were going to watch Titanic, he made a joke that I found rather tasteless. But I think (laughs) many people think of, he was like, yeah, when I watch Titanic, I sort of just fast forward through the first hour and I just want to get to the sinking. And I was like, fuck you. You do not understand this movie. (laughs) But I think that really speaks to something that's very common with this movie, that people think of it as two separate narratives and you either subscribe to one or you subscribe to the other. And I personally would contest that and say, if you spend an hour on the humanity of the characters, watching them drown is going to be a hell of a lot more compelling. So I think, so I think when people say, oh, I only like act two, it's like, how can you even appreciate act two if you didn't spend all this time focusing on their humanity? I think that that dichotomy is really a masculine-feminine dichotomy. Whether we agree with it or not, culture would say that Act 1 is for the women, Mm. Act 2 is for the men. Right. I think that's crazy horseshit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, this is a historical drama. It's based on a true story. Yes. Jack and Rose are fictional characters, and most of the characters that they interact with are also fictional, but most of the characters in the movie are based on historical figures, Yeah, like Molly Brown, played by Kathy Bates, Mr. Andrews, the Captain, Ismay, the Astors, and about 20 other people. Yeah, mostly of the upper class. Right. You know, all the lower class characters are clearly fictional. 
because we probably have minimal records of who was in the lower class steered sections of Titanic. Mm. Whereas the upper class section, people know exactly who was there, how much money they had, how they died, etc. This is so pathetic, Sam. I'm like already getting emotional. (laughs) Like I'm already like I can feel the tears (laughs) vaguely behind my eyes. We haven't even started. It's the opening. It's the first like 30 seconds. I cry really hard in the first 30 seconds. And then I don't cry for 45 minutes. And then in the big hunk of the sinking, I'm crying. Mm -hmm. And then I cry again at the end. Like there's like all these hills and valleys of me crying. But truly, I'm already at like a 10 on the emotional scale in the first minute of the movie. The opening shot is a sepia film footage of everybody Mm -hmm. waving goodbye at the dock. And then you see the moonlit ocean while the ghost woman is singing. (sighs) And then you go to the shipwreck. Mm -hmm. Like all of that is deeply emotional for me very fast. And then we go to Brock and his group of bros. And I sort of pull it back a little. I'm like, okay, they don't have emotion about this. So I don't really need to either. And that's a beautiful juxtaposition that the film is telling you that these characters don't care about the emotionality of this narrative. That's a really interesting way to start a movie that is known for its emotionality. So we meet Brock Lovett. Who is the first introduction to this film that capitalism and love of money is very different from the nuance of humanity. He is diving deep, literally, into this shipwreck and all he cares about is money and fortune and success. That is a brilliant foundation that then gets brought back later when we're in the flashbacks and we see that that is the world Rose lives in. She only lives in a world of people who value money and status Mm -hmm. and objects and are not interested in nuance or humanity. Like, Brock is our introduction to this giant theme of the movie. The necklace brings out that darkness in people. When Brock finds the drawing for the first time, he barely notices that it's this like gorgeous drawing of this woman who lived, who existed. He doesn't even notice that. He just pays attention to the fact that she's wearing the necklace that he's trying to find. The necklace gives people permission to ignore humanity Mm. in favor of capitalism. That's a giant, giant theme of this movie. And it starts with Brock and then it feeds through the rest of the movie with Cal, with her mother, with everybody. With the system that obviously we're going to talk about where the upper class gets on the rescue boats first. Mm Mm-hmm. And so when Rose throws the necklace back into the sea at the it's end. It's so satisfying. Right. Because we've just learned that the essence of the Titanic was the people aboard. Yep. It wasn't. The wealth. Right. God, it's so beautiful. So anyway, so back to the exposition. We're down in the submarine that's lurking around the shipwreck. And we hear the sonar beeping. We hear the bubbling of the ocean. It feels very sort of cold and cerebral. And then you hear hints of this ghostly music. Mm. When it pans over the piano or when it pans over the face of the doll, you hear that ghostly music and you can tell that Brock does not hear it. Brock is not listening to that. He's just paying attention to what he can find that would be useful or helpful to him. But the movie's already set up that there is ghostly music that's going to come back later. It reminded me of the greatest movie ever, Holes. The (laughs) first... I love Holes so much. I think it's truly the greatest movie ever made. Don't fight me. Love Holes. Anyway, in the first like 20 minutes of Holes, Shia LaBeouf's character, shut up, you're smiling, it's funny. (laughs) He shows up to Camp Green like 
And there's all these like quick little visions of the ghosts of days Uh, of past, right? You see Sam, the onion picker. It's this beautiful way of saying when you return to the site of past ghosts, those ghosts linger. Those ghosts haven't gone anywhere. And that's what that music signifies in the first 15 minutes of Titanic. Mm -hmm. Oh God, it, it like gives me chills. It like gives me goosebumps how smart it is. So the music is by James Horner. Can't. It's just so good. I can't. It's so good. I feel like James Horner is as much a leading force behind this movie as Kate Winslet or James Absolutely. Cameron. And what I noticed this time around is how Irish the music is. Yeah. Pretty early on in the film, Jack's friend Tommy remarks that the ship is really Irish because it was built entirely by Irish hands. Yeah. And so I realized that the soundtrack to the film is really the voice of the ship. Absolutely. It's from the perspective of the ship itself. Right. So cool. I mean, really, they're saying between the beautiful vocalist who's singing the whole time Mm -hmm. and the Celtic sounds that you're referencing, they're saying the ship is an Irish woman, which is pretty (laughs) cool. Sure, yeah. Who's like mourning her own death. I also want to point out that because I was watching this movie as if I had never seen it before, I was really trying to block out everything I knew and everything I loved about it. I just wanted to watch it fresh. There is no indication for essentially the first 20 minutes of the film that Kate Winslet is going to be the lead of the movie you think Brock Lovett is the protagonist like you think this is a movie about Bill Paxton or at least he's going to be the narrator yeah but that the movie is going to be through his perspective the fundamental question of the movie is is he going to find this necklace right which after 20 minutes you just don't give a fuck about that question anymore I mean I guess you do sort of but you have all these other questions that take up so much more space but we transition from Brock's ship to this home in the hills of California right and And there's the most beautiful panning shot of all of this woman's belongings, her artifacts. Her home is covered with art and historical artifacts, cultural artifacts. And plants. And we slowly pan over to this old woman with her hands on a pottery wheel. She's artistic. She's free-spirited. We already know all of this. We slowly pan up to her face and we realize this is the main character of the story. So I'm seeing this old woman who, as far as I'm concerned, is like too old to be making pottery, right? Like, I don't know that many 100-year-olds who still do pottery. So the fact that she's doing pottery surrounded by plants, plants represent flourishing and growing and continuation, continuing life, I'm immediately told how special and interesting this woman is going to be. Yeah, she's not feeble. Yeah, she's old, but she's not any weaker than she was when she was younger. We even get that hint of sassiness when she calls Brock and she says, the woman in the drawing is me. Totally. I also noticed for the first time that she is the first person who uses the phrase heart of the ocean. Mm. We don't hear it before that. We don't even know really what they're looking for. They say diamond a few times, but that's it. The exposition that they are there to find this diamond, to find the heart of the ocean that's this valuable, all of that exposition is brought in with Rose. Brock has a very, very quick interaction with his like associate Bodine, and he says, probably one of my favorite lines in the movie, everyone who knows about the diamond is supposed to be dead or on this boat, but she knows. It sort of goes back to what we said with Mean Girls. I just feel like the rhythm of that line is so perfect. Mm. So we know that she's in on something. 
thing that they didn't think she'd be in on. And we get a little bit more exposition as we transition Rose onto the ship. We learn that she is 100 years old. She was 17 years old when she was on the ship. That she may not be who she says she is. That's also very important. Right. They question her identity, which is a very important thing to establish because the whole movie is about Rose struggling with her identity. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons is because she was an actress in the 20s. Right, and her name kept changing. Right. And she kept moving. All of these things that would imply she's not who she says she is. One thing I was sort of bittersweet, though, about is I thought about something you said last week with Notes on a Scandal, that many times when older actresses are featured in movies, it's to reflect back to when their real life happened. And this movie does that pretty unironically, pretty obliviously to that. Sure. But... I feel like that's okay, because the most important thing in her entire life that would ever happen to her happened when she was 17. So that's not really an ageist thing. And I would also argue that point too, because at least the message that I get at the very end of the film, when she dies in her bed, that panning shot of her lifetime of photographs, yeah, that was her life. Yeah. This was a moment in history that she lived, but... Her life was the 80 years that followed this experience. And that's something that we can get into great depth with when we talk about My Heart Will Go On, the Mm -hmm. theme song. So we meet Old Rose 11 minutes into the movie, and we meet Young Rose 22 minutes into the movie. That's fantastic, considering those are the two like leads of the film. And we meet them like kind of fairly way in. It reminded me of how the novel Frankenstein is structured. That I don't think people know this if they haven't read the original novel, that Frankenstein is actually being narrated by three different perspectives. There's someone who's on the ship in the Arctic with Victor. He starts the novel for like a while. And then the perspective shifts to Victor. And then the perspective shifts to the monster. That's the same thing that Titanic does. We think the perspective is Brock. Then we think the perspective is Old Rose. Then we find out the real perspective that matters the most in this movie is Young Rose. It's just awesome. It's just really intricate storytelling. Clearly, I just love the first 20 minutes of this movie. I think it's so genius how it's set up. So once we meet Rose, we're already emotionally connected to this thing that we don't know what it is yet. We see the way that she looks at the artifacts that they found her mirror, her hairpin. She's getting very emotional. And so we're getting really emotional, even though we don't know what it is that we're emotional about yet. I was watching that scene very differently than I normally do when she's looking at all of the things they found. This must be absolutely overwhelming for her because she probably thought she was going to go to the grave with this story. She probably did not anticipate that she would ever have to revisit this moment in her life. She said she's never told anyone this Mm -hmm. before. And here she is on a ship above the shipwreck and she's looking at her old hairbrush and they're asking her to tell this story that she's never told before. I think Gloria Stewart really captures how exhausting and overwhelming that must have been for Rose to be like, I can't believe I finally have to talk about this. I really had come to peace that I was never going to tell anyone this. Another one of my favorite lines is when she says the china had never been used, the sheets had never been slept in. My whole life, I always thought that this was a reference to the fact that the ship sunk two days after it had taken off. And so the China, you know, sunk prematurely before it was used, you know, like it was a lost opportunity, like the children who died on the Titanic before they had experienced things. What I didn't realize is that I sort of misinterpreted that line that she's saying no one had been on the Titanic before. The China had, yeah, the China had never been used by previous people traveling on the Titanic. And I think both interpretations really just say how 
raw this ship was. I remember as a kid being so obsessed with the parallel between her saying that in the beginning, the china had never been used, to like, you know, two hours later, and we see all of the plates fall Mm. off the cupboard walls. And I thought to myself, yeah, the china had never been used. That china will now never be used. So from this moment on, the story is deeply from Rose's perspective. Mm -hmm. And that's the main reason for me why this is a feminist film. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate these extreme close-ups of Gloria Stewart's face. Just the gorgeous wrinkles on her face that she has lived a life. Mm -hmm. And we'll really appreciate the beauty of that as we watch the movie, as we learn that she was considering suicide at such a young age, that she may have never escaped the ship. She could have easily gone down with the ship. That as far as she was concerned, she had lived a full life of misery by the age of 17. She already felt like she was a million years old. And that even if she had escaped the ship, if she had gone with her mother at the end and lived life the way her mother wanted her to live, that would not have been as satisfying as the life she ended up living on her own terms. Mm -hmm. I want to get back to the structure of this film. Okay. Because I cannot get over it. (laughs) I think one of the reasons this movie is as good as it is, is because of how it is so meticulously structured. This is the kind of story, a lot of people talk about Harry Potter like this, Hmm? that if you were to lay every plot point of the story uh, along a timeline and then fold that timeline in half, every plot point would meet its corresponding plot point on the other half of the movie. That's amazing. Can you explain that in Harry Potter? What are you saying? It's like in the beginning of Harry Potter, his murder is attempted, Mm -hmm. but he survives. At the same point... At the end of Harry Potter, he is killed, in quotes. Right, his murder is attempted, but he survives. Right. Yeah. At the beginning of the third book, he learns that he has a godfather, Sirius Black. Mm -hmm. At the end of the fifth book, Sirius Black dies. Yeah. And so on and so on and so on. The whole series is like that. Wow. Titanic is the exact same way. There's a symmetry that you're saying is satisfying. Yes. Amazing. In the first 30 minutes of the movie, Rose is at the stern, and she's about to jump over. Yeah. They talk about the freezing cold water. That's Mm -hmm. the first time we get that bit of exposition. At the same point towards the end of the movie is when they're in the same exact location as the ship is sinking. In act one, Rose learns how to spit. In act two, she spits in Cal's face. Yeah. Everything that is established in the first half of the movie gets a satisfying callback in the second half of the movie. Mm -hmm. So we have this gorgeous structure. We have act one, act two split completely in the middle of the movie at the (laughs) midway point after they kiss for the first time at the bow of the ship and my heart will go on starts to come in very quietly it's the big finale of act one and we cut for the first time in a long time to old rose and brock Mm -hmm. and they're enraptured in the story and then we go into the sort of dramatic half of the movie i also just quickly want to go back to the modern day sequence where it so geniusly gives you every single bit of information you need to follow the story in the rest of the flashback bodine gives a very very detailed presentation of how the ship sinks 
So when you're watching it later, you don't have to worry what literally is happening. You know what literally is happening. So now you can focus on the emotional stuff because you're like, oh yeah, the water fills up here and then it turns this way. So you're not busy being surprised. You can just focus on the terror. I also think part of the success of doing it that way is how cold and emotionless the way he narrates that happening. Absolutely. And then to balance that with actually seeing it, which is, you know, it's it's the worst thing you've ever seen. It's unwatchable. (laughs) When she says, thank you for that analysis, but the experience of it was somewhat different. Right. You as just a human being know that that must be true. You know, that the way he tells it so cold and with such sass couldn't possibly have been her experience of it. But then you actually get to live inside that experience for two hours and you realize what an asshole he sounded like at the beginning of the movie. I hate that guy. (laughs) He's got the absolute worst t-shirt I've ever seen. (laughs) T-shirt, yes. I was really turned off to all of them. I was like, have some respect. Have some respect for the past. (laughs) But that wasn't their job. They were treasure hunters. You know, it wasn't their job to be emotional about it. But they really turn into a kind of a kind of medium for the audience. They're the representation of us, the viewers, in mm, the film. Yeah. Especially as they're listening to Rose's story. Right, that we may have a vague understanding of what literally happened, but we sort of don't have enough space in our own lives to be more emotional about it than that. Right. And then we have the whole movie telling us how wrong that is. That this is something worth being emotional about. We also watch them get deeply entrenched in the story. Yeah, and invested. There's something very special about a movie where the fact that you know the ending is a giant part of watching the movie. Right. Like you're in the story, but you're also not in the story because you're like, when's it going to happen? When are they going to find out what's going on? I'm so into the romance, though, that I completely forget what's going to (laughs) happen. All right, let's get into the romance. So, okay. (laughs) I'm a huge fan of romance. I love romantic movies. They're probably my favorite genre of movie. Mm -hmm. And this will surprise you, listeners. (laughs) Probably because I think that romance has sort of like a lowbrow kind of like frivolous reputation. And I want to touch on that for a minute, if you don't mind. No, of course. I truly think that the reason that romantic films are not held in high esteem is because they're, quote, women's movies. Chick flicks. Yeah. And the reason for that is because they were created for the consumption of women. They were advertised towards women. Most of the time, they're centered around a woman's perspective. But I really think that for a long time, women were drawn to romantic movies, not because of the love stories, but simply because they were the only movies available with women at the center. Yeah, you told me that a couple of months ago, and it's totally changed my perspective on the way I look at romance movies, especially classic romance movies, like Gone with the Wind, or these older movies that women love, that simply feature women, (laughs) that simply have women protagonists. And I can't for the life of me figure out why there's this weird masculine stigma around romantic movies that they're not meant for men, or they're not enjoyable for men, because most of the time, you know, most romantic movies are about a heterosexual relationship. Mm -hmm. Half of that relationship is a man. And at least the men that I know, they're just as interested in falling in love or meeting a girl or getting married or whatever as the women that I know. Absolutely. So what is the deal? Can I try to answer that? Yeah. So this has always been sort of a funny thing that you and I talk about when we talk about movies, because as much as you love romance movies... I think it's fair to say that's how much I dislike romance movies. Mm -hmm. I really resent them. 
Frankly, I think there's just a lot of things in life that are just more interesting to talk about. Our conversation about the craft, about being susceptible to power. There's just a lot of nuance to life and to humanity that extends beyond falling in love. And I just want to see women tackle all of those things. I think the reason a lot of men aren't interested in romance is because they have the entire canon of films to talk about other things, to talk about addiction or power or war or all these other themes that make up what it is to be a human being. I feel sad that romances are celebrated as if they are the main or one of the most important things that are in women's lives. I simply subjectively would rather see a woman deal with other issues in their Mm -hmm. lives. And that's not to say I don't like romance at all. I like romance. I like having crushes. I like being in relationships. It's not romance itself. It's the way that romantic movies perpetuate this idea that a woman having a romance in her life is of utmost, utmost importance Mm -hmm. and puts value on her existence. That's what upsets me. And I concede that a lot of romance stories are problematic and frame the romance in the context that her marriage is either the goal or the victory at the end, especially marriage to a rich man. Mm. I resent the gender roles that are perpetuated in a lot of romances. Like, I'm aware of all of that, except when I look into my heart of hearts, when I'm watching any kind of media content, the thing that I'm most interested in is, are they going to make out? But I love that, and I also feel the same way. <laughs> like, that's something you and I have jo- We've joked about this for years, yeah. that we really just want to see actors kiss. That's really all any audience member wants. <laughs> They're like primal, gross, yeah. perverted, like we all just want to see like dramaturgically sound porn. <laughs> that's what a lot of art is. <laughs> but if that's all a movie was to me, I would feel like it was tremendously reductive to the woman's character. Hmm. I want to see them struggle with all these other things too. I just like, I actually do think that love, and I'm not talking about marriage, I'm not talking about societal gender roles. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about two people, whether they're hetero or gay or what have you, realizing that they love each other is to me the absolute most profound expression of humanity. I think that's beautiful. One more thing that I might posit as to why I think it's actually more the culture of romance movies that I resent more than the movies themselves. I find it deeply troubling and disturbing that a lot of women are being told to watch these movies as fantasy, Mm. as let me escape my real life where men are dumbos or whatever, or I'm single, or I wish I had a more exciting affair right now, or I wish my marriage was more exciting. People use these romance movies to escape the reality that I think they should be respecting and enjoying and figuring out the nuance of those situations. I think the fantasy of these like perfect men depicted in romance movies is incredibly unhealthy for when women then return to their real lives and maybe get those romantic movies twisted up in their expectations for real life. Like again, you and I don't want to be negative on this podcast, but I think Twilight really, really hurt an entire generation of young women. Truly, for their expectations about relationships, for what is considered abuse, emotional abuse and whatnot, I think it was really damaging. And that upsets me. I think if people knew that it was just a fictional movie, that's one thing. But I think it affected the way women think about relationships. 
My argument to that, and this does not concern Twilight because I totally agree with you there, but I know that that's also an argument that a lot of men make against romances, that it builds this fantasy of the perfect man that they could hardly live up to. I think that's sort of sad because I think a lot of the time what women find in romances to escape to is men that simply show women respect. Right, and are like decent. Right. So in that case, I think it's a fantasy that the world should be working harder to live up to. I totally agree with that. And I think that's totally sound. I guess just my response would be, it's not just the fantasy expectations of men that men find unrealistic, but you're saying should be coveted, which I agree with. It's the expectation of what kind of woman you should be in order to deserve these kind of romances. A lot of these movies say that if you're not gorgeous like Kate Hudson and cute like Zoe Deschanel and all these things, then you are not worthy of love because there are no movies about women who aren't like that. Like all romances star these unreasonably beautiful women, (laughs) you know? And I just wonder how self-esteem is the casualty of those expectations being set by these movies. Every successful relationship I've seen in my own life, successful relationships I've been in or are currently having, do not resemble any single romance movie I have ever seen. And that's devastating. Like, again, I don't want to get too much into my own story, but my current relationship is so fucking romantic and so funny and would make such an interesting, compelling movie. And I've never seen a movie that resembles our kind of relationship where it's based on inside jokes and the sex is funny, not super dramatic, but it's real life. There's not lush music playing. It's just two real people. I think we're in agreement that a romance at its core is a valuable story to be told. It's just that there haven't been enough examples of people telling that kind of story in a valuable way. Yeah. So that was all like a beautiful tangent. I love your opinions. You love mine. <laughs> Let's get back to the romance in Titanic. Right. So I really do think of this movie as a romance. Totally. Mm-hmm. I do too. Great. This is one of the few movies where the romance, in my opinion, genuinely serves the story Mm. and is like earned and important to the character development. Regardless of the fact that they're both the most beautiful people who have ever lived. (laughs) Right. Which goes completely (laughs) unacknowledged. So we're finally into the flashback. (laughs) So we meet young Rose. Rose DeWitt Bucator. We meet her in the context of Old Rose's narration. She's describing this life of entrapment in this high society that is forcing her to behave in certain ways and also forcing her to marry a man that she has absolutely no interest in marrying. She has this gorgeous line outside, I was everything a well brought up girl should be. Inside, I was screaming. And that line is said in narration over Rose and Cal walking onto the Titanic and her arm is linked in his and they look so beautiful. It's such a dignified, like posh visual moment juxtaposed with this extremely violent graphic narration. God, it's effective. We get a great corset scene when she's being tied up by her mom. There is nothing more visually compelling to me that represents (laughs) women's oppression than a good old corset. Yeah. Her mom is tying her up in this corset while she's explaining to her why she needs to marry Cal Hockley. (laughs) You're right. I never thought of it that way. And we find out that it's because they're bankrupt and... And in debt. Yeah. And so she's following in the footsteps of generations of women before her in taking on the responsibility 
for the family to marry a rich man. I think this could have been such a lesser movie if that mother wasn't so compelling and so well-written. Right. Her line, we're women, our choices are never easy. She sees the pain that she's putting her daughter in and like doesn't care because their lives, as far as she's concerned, are so much bigger than that, are so much bigger than one person's individual happiness. Right. It's about status. It's about your place in the world. This mother's biggest nightmare is being a seamstress. That is her biggest fear is no longer being a part of the world that she's grown up in. I sort of have empathy for that because she just doesn't know better. All of this leads up to very early on in this flashback sequence, Rose attempting suicide. Yeah, like a few hours after she's got on the ship. Mm -hmm. And that's when she meets Jack. Right. Who we've only seen up until now as being this like happy-go-lucky nomad. Right. Who doesn't really have any ties to the world and therefore can just be happy and bouncing around. (laughs) We've seen one glimpse of him seeing Rose for the first time and there's an instant attraction. That's a great moment, isn't it? But it's sort of amazing that the film doesn't allow them to have any kind of like meet cute. They (laughs) meet. Right? Totally. They meet in this drastic dramatic situation. Yeah, you're so right. I never thought of it that way. Maybe that's another reason why I love the romance in this movie because it's there's nothing like cute and charming about it. It starts with really high stakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't kill yourself off the side of this ship. Oh God, and the way he communicates to her in that scene, it's just like, yeah, it's so perfect. He respects her mm. as a person in a way that she's probably never felt respected her mm. entire life. Yeah, The way that he tells her to pull her herself up. Yeah. He sort of like, he grasps her hands, but she really has to do the work to climb back onto the ship. Throughout this entire movie, the way this romance plays out is he allows her to find the power within herself that she had all along. Yeah, I think that's such a good point, that it really wasn't necessarily their romance. It was the fact that he was the only person she's ever met who challenged her to have her own point of view. Right. And to have an identity beyond her wealth. That didn't even necessarily have to be within the context of a romance. That's just when you meet anyone who really changes your life because they offer you a new point of view. And they start as friends, don't they? The first 30 minutes of their relationship, they're truly getting to know each other. They're just hanging out. He's showing her his drawings. They're dancing together. Like, of course they're attracted to each other, but that's so not the point. I think it's so important that they have the same taste in art. Yeah! (laughs) We learn in Rose's first scene that she is interested in art. She has these paintings that she's hanging up in her little apartment. (laughs) And Cal comments on it, like... He'll never amount to a thing, trust me. Yeah. (laughs) But as soon as she sees his artwork, that's the moment when she, like, takes him seriously for the first time. Mm. And then the first time we hear their romantic theme, the music, it's when he's talking about the prostitute's sense of humor that he (laughs) drew. It's when she sees this twinkle of empathy in him. Mm. That's the first time we hear the romantic music. That's really interesting, yeah. Jack is so level-headed throughout this whole movie and I so appreciate that. Not only does he speak to her like an equal, but in the second half of the film, she truly would not have survived without him. He is so level-headed, he's so calm, he tells her exactly what they need to do. Okay, breathe in at this moment, paddle like this. He says to her when they're in the ship, when it's filling up with water, I need you to swim. He gives very clear instructions And that made me wonder, what other kind of crises has he experienced in life? How many moments like this of very high stakes, running away from people that he owed money to, 
what kind of moments did he have to survive on his own? I feel like that was really great subtle storytelling of his character. That it takes a certain kind of person to be that calm when you're on a sinking ship. Yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, we know he's a nomad. He sort of jumped onto the ship at the last minute. He won the ticket in a game of poker. Right. I think in juxtaposition with Rose's situation, his nomad lifestyle is very romantic and appealing. But I think in reality, that would terrify me and probably not be that appealing, (laughs) you know? He represents freedom. Yeah. And I think regardless of, you know, the real struggles of being poor, that freedom is so much more important to Rose than what she's facing. Yeah, that's why, and also, you know, related to the romance, I find it so compelling that when she's put in the rescue boat by Cal and she sees the two of them up above her and she's going down and she jumps back onto the ship, that moment to me was never about Jack. It was that if she's gonna die tonight, she wants to die on her terms with freedom and dignity and in the arms of the person she loves. I sort of never saw that as a romantic moment. I always saw that really as a romantic moment between Rose and herself. Yeah, in a way she's been so brainwashed and he sort of has to crack that ice a little bit Yeah, in order to make her see that she deserves more. When she finally decides to be with him, it's in this moment when she's actually with her mother and she sees that little girl at the other table yeah. being brainwashed just in the same way that she was. Yeah. And she decides this is not the life that I want. Yeah. I want a different life. And that's what Jack represents. That's what Jack often to her. It's not only the pleasure of his company, which to be fair is (laughs) enough. (laughs) It's not enough. (laughs) It's that he represents an entirely new life. Yeah. At one point he calls her a girl by accident and then he corrects himself and he calls her a woman. And then he says, they've got you trapped and you're going to die if you don't break free. She says, it's not up to you to save me, Jack, which is true. (laughs) And he says, you're right. Only you can do that. Yes. Right? Yes. Right? (laughs) You know, I want more men like this. He wants a woman who can keep up with him. He is busy, adventurous, risky. He wants a woman who he doesn't have to take care of. He wants a woman who Mm. can like match him in terms of energy, in terms of resilience and perseverance. He sort of falls in love with her at the party too, when she tries to drink with the men. Right. You know, he doesn't want an ingenue who doesn't have opinions the way that Cal does. Cal wants an object that he can carry around with him at these parties who's like a beautiful trophy. Jack wants like a a wrestling partner. He wants someone that he can like get in the dirt with. He wants someone he can have fun with. Yeah, and that he can respect as an equal. Yeah. Men, listen to Jack. This is what we want. The fantasy of Jack is not because Leonardo DiCaprio was so dreamy, which he is. It's because he actually respects Rose and he demands equality from her. He demands a partner in crime who is his equal. The scene where the two of them are running away from Cal's henchman, you know, his bodyguard, Lovejoy, they're laughing, they're smiling, they're being mischievous children. She wants to be 17. That's all she wants. She wants to be 17 years old. And they both recognize that in each other, that they can have fun together. Fun is a very profound theme in this movie, that like fun has real value and importance in the world. That was never as apparent to me in the movie than that scene, Mm. that they are kids in love. Yeah. Again, we have this Romeo and Juliet parallel. Who were 14. Yeah. (laughs) Little children. Also, did we not yet make the comparison that Leonardo DiCaprio also played Romeo just a few years earlier? (laughs) 
which is one of my favorite movies. I'm obsessed with that movie. I know a lot of people have strong feelings about it. I love it. I think it's the best interpretation of Romeo and Juliet. I agree. Baz Luhrmann, perfect. Just yeah. a perfect filmmaker. Yeah. <laughs> but that scene, the only thing that came to mind was like Ferris Bueller running away from his <laughs> principal. Like that's how silly and fun and frivolous they were in that scene. Yeah. And when they go to the party mm. and they get drunk and they have fun and they're spinning around and around. Like, that felt like a couple of kids going to, like, a college party. Yeah. Everything we're talking about, this alone would be incredibly interesting <laughs> and be enough, right? But then they top Jack's character by giving him two very powerful, hilarious moments of low status with Rose. Mm. The first is when she takes off all her clothes and he is terrified. Oh my god. He has seen so many naked women in his life and this is the first time he's ever like blushed oh, and been nervous in front yeah. of a naked woman. So that's number one. By the way, she's totally chill, right? Like she's good in that moment. And I also want to say that that scene is entirely her decision. Oh yeah. She suggests the drawing to him. The famous line, I want you to draw me like one of your French girls. <laughs> Like, not only is that, like, an amazing quotable line. And but super sexy. It's it's super sexy, but it's also her taking control of her own sexual identity. Yeah. I love that scene for so many reasons. I love that scene, too. I wrote down while I was watching it that it both embodies the male gaze, but then also subverts it because of the emotional context of that scene. They have a friendship. They're both, like, pretty much in love in that moment. And she's the one calling the shots about how she wants to be seen by the world. She doesn't want to be a porcelain doll anymore. She would, frankly, rather be a beautiful naked woman. Mm -hmm. So I do want to acknowledge that there is a male gaze there. Her pose is, you know, like Titian, like all of these famous Renaissance painters, but it feels so based in friendship and respect between the two characters that I didn't mind it. So anyway, so besides the drawing scene, that's the first time that we actually see Jack as a boy. Yeah. Like people don't acknowledge that she's 17. He's probably not that much older than her. He said that he's been on his own since he was 15. How long do you think that was? Probably just a few years. He's 20. So flash to the next moment when he really is in the position of low status next to her. Is there sex scene in the car? It's pretty clear to me anyway. Tell me if you disagree that they're both losing their virginities in that moment. Yeah. And she's totally cool with it because this is super hot and on her own terms and it's not to cowl, thank God, which is probably what she thought her whole life. She was going to lose her virginity on her wedding night to some schmuck. Instead, she's in the back of a car on a ship with this like new hunky guy. Meanwhile, he is petrified and it's so cute. And after they both have this like climactic sexual experience, he's freaked out and she's not. There's something really beautiful and surprising about that, that you'd think he'd be the one like leading her through this when really he's as scared as she is. Also, just the way that she pulls him through the window <laughs> right. in the car, she's so strong and he's so light. <laughs> And the scene itself is so unexploitative. It's really all about just the intensity on their faces. Yeah. And like the, the beads of sweat yeah, on their the face. Sweat. Yeah. And the hand on the window. That's a very graphic, vivid sex scene where you don't actually end up seeing anything. It's like the sex scene we described in Tangerine, mm. where you get the full emotional and like stimulating experience of what it would be like to have sex, but you're not actually exploiting these actors' bodies. It's so much more powerful to just watch two 
two actors panting, covered in sweat, staring at each other. Right. And like, we get it. Like, we know, yeah. we know what that was. So I have a question. Yes. Is Jack a manic pixie dream boy? Love it. <laughs> I mean, yes, absolutely. <laughs> totally. He serves that exact function in this movie. Why am I not mad about that double standard? Because you and I totally shat on the manic pixie dream girl a couple of episodes ago. Right. I'm totally fine with him being a manic pixie dream boy because he's the only one. Name another movie like that. Hmm. He's the only one. And he's still totally well written and well developed and we know his backstory. I mean, not entirely. We could have gotten more backstory from him, but I think it's great. The fact that his character is there to serve her arc is what manic pixie dream girls are in other movies. Right. Maybe I'm a hypocrite, but it doesn't bother me. (laughs) Should it? Do you think it should bother me? Oh, I haven't decided. I really just wanted to pose the question. <laughs> listeners, tell us, especially our male listeners, tell us if we're being total hypocrites right now in right. not objecting to him being a manic pixie dream boy. I also think that Jack's kind of like perfected form of masculinity <laughs> is meant to be in stark contrast to, frankly, the rest of the men in the film. Well, that's interesting you say the word masculinity in terms of Jack, because I think what you're referencing, correct me if I'm wrong, is that he doesn't exude any masculinity except confidence and knowing who he is and being relaxed in his own body and in his own choices. He doesn't really have a relationship to masculinity. I think that toxic masculinity is a main character of this film. Absolutely. It's certainly what drove the ship into the iceberg. Right. I think that maybe like 20 years ago when the film came out, we would say that the thing that drove the ship into the ocean was hubris. Mm. But I think that hubris is really just like an old-timey word for toxic masculinity. (laughs) Sure. It's really these men thinking that they're larger than life, and for that reason, their ego fuels, I think, all of the action in this movie. Totally. They have a preoccupation with size that's in dialogue with Freud. (laughs) Well, okay, that's one of my favorite lines of the movie. She's so funny. So we meet Ismay, who owns the ship and paid for it being built. Played by Jonathan Hyde, who was such a huge part of my childhood between Richie Rich and Jumanji and Titanic. I think Jonathan oh Hyde God, is just so, so great. Funny. He says that he named the ship Titanic because he wanted to convey sheer size, and size means stability, luxury, and above all, strength. And Rose says, Do you know of Dr. Freud, Mr. Esme? His ideas about the male preoccupation with size might be of particular interest to you. And like everyone at the table, including some of the men, like snicker and think of Rose as a total badass. Right. (laughs) But isn't that like... That sums up the whole movie. Yeah, pretty much. There we are. Pretty much. That's what Titanic is about. (laughs) So we have Esme, and then we have Cal who really doesn't have anything to do with the ship. In fact, he pretty much keeps the uh, the action of the ship outside of his objective and his awareness. He is pretty much concerned with Rose. Mm, I never thought of it that way. You're totally right. Cal is played by Billy Zane. Just genius. He is the worst human alive. Cal is the worst human alive, not Billy Zane. We don't right. know Billy Zane. <laughs> um, he is so evil and his eyebrows are so sculpted. They're so good. <laughs> I mean, he looks like a guy who would be cast as the romantic lead of classic old black and white romance movies of the first half of 20th century. By casting him so perfectly and having him so dashing and handsome, you're really subverting what women's options were. You know, like he seems like a pretty fucking good catch from the outside. He's rich, he's super hot, he's charming. And then you get to know him and he's the worst person alive. You all 
also really kind of understand clearly how wrong it is to force a 17-year-old girl to marry a man in his 30s. Is he in his 30s? Definitely. Oh my god. In terms of your movie star comment, Mm -hmm. if this movie were made in the 1950s, Rose would have been played by Audrey Hepburn, Jack would have been played by like Humphrey Bogart, someone like twice her age. Totally. Leonardo DiCaprio as Jack is a kid, and that is so important. Mmm. Okay, so Cal is the worst human alive. (laughs) There's no time to build sympathy for him. We know immediately from his first few lines that he is garbage. Not only his first few lines, but they actually give very detailed, specific examples of Rose feeling trapped by this world. At the lunch, she's smoking and they're about to order food. He takes the cigarette out of her mouth and then he orders for her. Like in three seconds, you learn very quickly that this girl can't smoke when she wants and she can't eat what she wants. Yeah. Really fast. And then Molly goes, you're going to cut her meat for her too, Cal? God bless Kathy Bates in this movie. We will talk about her in a minute. She's amazing. He grabs her. There's that traumatic scene when he like throws the table. Yeah. He is like the symbol of toxic masculinity. Mm. Toxic masculinity intersected with the dangers of wealth. Mm-hmm. The dangers of being, it's like what we talked about in Uptown Girls. When you're that wealthy, it fucks with you. It sort of ruins the way you look at the world. Mm. Also in that scene where he throws the table, I know she has a very quick part, but even the supporting characters in this movie are so brilliantly cast. Her two second moment with Trudy, that Trudy walks in on this very abusive moment and Rose is like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, let me help you clean up. And Trudy's yeah. like, girl, I got it. Like, I know you're dealing with other shit. And then Rose finally lets herself like fall and cry in front of her maid. That moment was so great. I kind of want Trudy to like have her own narrative. You know what I mean? Like I wanted to see what she was going through knowing that her boss, who it seemed like she loved, it seemed like they had a pretty nice civil relationship, was marrying this monster who Mm. she just saw like assault her. Love Trudy. Trudy dies. We see Trudy die. We see everyone die, but it struck me this time that we like actually see Trudy die. Right. So towards the end when the ship is sinking and Cal is still just like obsessed with Rose. Yeah. I started thinking like what is going on here? Like why is he why is he still so obsessed when like his life is at stake? He loves her. No. Okay. <laughs> I realized that it's that same hubris. It's that same belief that he is indestructible. Mm, yeah. Because of his wealth, because of his masculinity. Like, he knows that he's going to survive this ship sinking. Wow, you're so right. he's able to compartmentalize and completely focus on the fact that his toy is being taken away from him. Mm, Totally. I even noted this time around that they offer him a chance to get on a rescue boat fairly early into the sinking and he turns it down because he wants to make sure she gets on a boat. And I remember clocking that and thinking that was a little weird, but it totally ties into what you're saying, that he's not worried about getting on a ship later because of course he's going to. And I think that's all tied in with the way that they evacuate the ship with women and children first, men second, that men are indestructible. They're going to survive the sinking of the ship anyway, so we might as well save the fragile women and children first. That's so heavy. I feel like I've always secretly danced around that idea in my head. I've always like subconsciously intuited that from this movie, but 
I've never heard it that eloquently that it's actually totally sexist that they put women and children first. It's not for their sake to save them. It's that they are weak and pitiful and need to be like coddled to safety because men can take care of themselves, even though they all end up dying. And I'm sure there's more to it. Like, of course, save children first, but children need to be looked after and women know how to look after children and men don't. Yeah. So that's probably part of it. I guess though, when I watch this movie, I still sort of question the women and children thing because you'd think that as prideful as the men on this ship are, they're also smart and clever and know that they're going to die if they don't get on a rescue ship, you know? Like, that always felt very confusing to me. I mean, it's also confusing that they only put enough lifeboats on this ship for half the passengers. Amen. It's this overwhelming ego. You're saying don't apply logic to the choices made by toxic masculinity? Yeah. Great. (laughs) Mic drop. The lifeboats being able to fit 60 or 70 people and only instead filling it with 12 to 20 people. I mean, now we're entering the phase of the conversation, which to me is the heart, the core of this movie, which is the metaphorical relationship between poverty and wealth and being disposable and being worth saving. Yeah. It's a lot. I mean, the second half of the movie to me packs a much more profound punch than just watching people sink in a ship, but knowing that you're watching people who were curated to sink by societal structure of socioeconomics. Yeah. These people were chosen to die by capitalism. God, yeah. When you say it that way, it's like, it makes my stomach turn. Yeah. Seeing those boats leaving with so much empty space on them. Yeah. Ah. It's so frustrating. It's so beautiful how so many characters in this movie get arcs, even if they're slight arcs. You know, Cal has a huge arc. And Molly Brown has a huge arc that she starts the movie fairly lighthearted. She's so happy to be wealthy. She's so happy to be living this new life. And by the end of the movie, there is a rage to her that we've never even seen her be capable of in the first half of the movie. She's screaming at the women saying, it's your men out there. Why aren't we going back? Suddenly, this character who seems sort of like a comic relief, minor character, has such... She's one of the only people that really understands the weight of this moment. And you see Rose's mother sit next to her, so freaked out, so paralyzed. She doesn't do anything. And the last shot we see of the two of them, Rose's mother, who spent the entire movie judging Molly and being super rude to her, she's leaning on her. And the two of them have this sort of embrace, this kinship of sisterhood, because they know what they've just gone through and they're processing the fact that they have survived it because of their wealth. I mean, how confusing and conflicting must that have been for Molly, who grew up her whole life poor? Right. I wish more of that had been explored. Like what Molly was feeling considering all of the people who were dying were her kin, you know, were the people that she grew up with. Right. I started thinking about how this sinking is a giant microcosmic metaphor for life and who are we? In this, Are we the ship officers who are trying to get people onto the rescue boats? Are we the people drowning? Are we the captains? Like who, like who is each person representing? Mm-hmm. And I had this idea that I've thought about for years now and I've sort of wrestled with that artists are the violinists. That of all the people on the ship, I sort of identify with the violinists. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to help. I don't know how. I don't really have the 
faculties to to stop this from happening. I'm not the captain. I frankly don't know if I'd have the bravery to be the officers who are trying to escort people onto the rescue ships. I sort of think of myself as the violinists who will make something that is otherwise unbearable to experience slightly easier because yeah. you're hearing beautiful music. That scene where they're playing Near My God to Thee is by far incomparably my favorite scene in the entire movie. Because if you took away that music, that scene is unfucking watchable. It is so painful and horrible. The only thing that gives it some relief is the music. I don't know if that theory is real or legitimate, but that's what I get from it. I love that, that life is sort of this race towards death. Yeah. And so in this movie, which is... An immediate race towards death. Yeah, exactly. That anyone can find themselves in the ways that people react to knowing that they're going to die. Yeah. When the lead violinist says, it's been a privilege playing with you tonight. Ugh, my yeah. heart is so swollen. I also think no matter how many times you hear the story that the wealthy people were let onto the lifeboats before the people in steerage, it's never as viscerally just like heart shattering as seeing the officers lock those gates. Yeah. Imprisoning people in a sinking ship. Yeah. I think more than ever, this film is really relevant to society right now, in America right now, in, in Trump's America. And when you think about those various roles, if you're the violinist, if you're the officers, if you're the people drowning, I think this film is pretty fucking loud about the fact that this entire experience, this entire failing of this ship sinking was like two or three people's responsibility. Like talk about the 1%. This was two or three people on this ship who made all of this happen. It was the captain and Ismay whose one choice resulted in this giant epic failing. Yeah. It was the captain. It was the CEO. It was the president. You know, it's these one or two people at the top who curate the rest of the world happening and failing people and killing people. When the ship is at a diagonal because half of it has already sunk and the other half is like diagonally out. Frankly, I thought of the election, like the image of the election, of hearing that Trump was elected president. That was the image that immediately came into my head because I kept repeating the phrase, this isn't supposed to happen. Like when I saw the ship, I was like, that's not what ships are supposed to look like. A ship is not supposed to be diagonally hanging out of the water. That's not what ships are supposed to do. And that's how I feel right now about Trump. Like this is not the way America is supposed to be. This looks wrong. This looks unnatural. So I found myself sort of rolling my eyes whenever I saw shots like that of the ship. It was like, we are watching ourselves fail. Yeah, this whole section, this whole half of the movie is so stressful that at a certain point, I actually had to like turn it off. I had to like go walk in the other room and yeah. had to like chill out. And then I was like, okay, I'm ready now to, to watch the, the rest of the movie. Like I couldn't watch it straight through. It was, it was stimulus overload. It's devastating. I think the worst of it is, I mean, it's all hard to watch, but seeing the bodies flailing in the water, Yeah. I don't think it gets worse than that. <laughs> That's actually a good segue into what I think is particularly satisfying because you and I make theater and we know how many just bodies, like how many man hours go into something like this. Has anyone ever demanded so much of extras <laughs> in a movie. Seriously. These extras are the star of the movie to make. I truly think there should have been an Oscar for best ensemble of the thousands of extras who are doing four things simultaneously. I wrote them down. They are acting their butts off. Their entire lives are flashing before their eyes. Mm -hmm. They're crying. They're screaming. They're giving like, 
deep, deep emotional performances while they are being complete athletes doing stunts, falling from shit, running into shit, like flailing their bodies. That movie must have been just physically exhausting, let alone emotionally exhausting. The third aspect is that they are freezing cold in water. Yeah. They're doing all of this in water. And then four, they're doing it in period costumes, which must have been really heavy and frustrating and annoying. No one has ever demanded so much of extras, and these extras are so good. I have this theory that the mark of a good movie and a good director is good extras. That's funny, yeah. Like, when you're watching a movie and suddenly you're distracted by, like, extras in the back background just like nodding their heads over and over and over again like if a director doesn't care enough to direct their extras in a valuable way like they might as well throw their movie in the garbage as far as I'm concerned Yeah, I mean, the way we were talking about Mean Girls, that Mean Girls is a collection of brilliant lines strung together by a great plot. I sort of feel the way about the experience of watching Titanic, that Titanic is a collection of incredible shots of people, of individual people. Some of my favorite people in this movie are on screen for two seconds. The priest who is holding people's hands while he's clinging to the ship and like the tears down his face. That's not... Like a character, you know what I mean? Like he's on screen for 20 seconds and yet he's giving life in his 20 seconds of a performance. This is truly an ensemble movie. I know we talk about this movie as this like showpiece for Kate and Leo, but it is an ensemble movie. You couldn't really communicate the epic loss of all of the people on the ship if we hadn't gotten to know hundreds of characters through the course of the movie. Absolutely. The mother who puts her children to sleep. Oh my God. Yeah, As telling the them a is, bedtime story. Yeah, Isidore Strauss and his wife, who they don't ever name them in the movie, but you know it's based on the guy who ran Macy's, mm. who his wife would not get on a rescue boat because she wanted to stay with her husband. And in the movie, there's a very quick shot of the two of them spooning in bed, crying yeah. as the water floods in. I love the little girl who's in love with Jack and... Cora. Yeah. I love Fabrizio. I love Tommy. Yeah. Love Victor Garber as Mr. Andrews. Yeah. I mean, him too, right? This was his fault too. Mm-hmm. He was like one of the three that like made this happen. Even good men make bad things happen like that. And it's even other characters, like at the very end when they're on the rescue ship, sort of refugees, and that older woman is crying to an officer and says, maybe he's on another ship. You know, we get a whole narrative there mm-hmm. that she thought her husband was going to survive and she's searching for him now on the ship. Right. We just got an entire narrative from like two seconds. You know, like these actors are giving life to this movie. Mm-hmm. All hundreds of them. Obviously, the, the detail and effort that went into how they <laughs> controlled the water and sort of choreographed the water moving with all of these actors is sort of too much for us to even talk about right now because right. that, that's like a whole documentary. But one moment of the ship sinking that really fed to the dramaturgy of the moment is when the lights go out, the electricity on oh the ship God. goes out and it makes the film from that point on literally darker. Like hope and light are fading. One of my absolute favorite sequences of the entire film is when Rose is racing through the flooded ship when the lights are going on and off and these waves of water are coming in and she's swimming inside of the ship to Mm. save Jack. Mm. Kate Winslet is like a proper action hero in that sequence. Yeah. In a dress, no less. Yeah. And I mean, to end this romance with the girl saving the boy. I'm like super into that. Sure. He has plenty of moments of saving her too, but that's what a partnership is. You save each other. Exactly. Yeah. When she finds him in the room, she's calling to him, Jack, Jack, and he calls to her and he's chained up in his handcuffs and he's sort of like instructing her about like, 
get the axe, get yeah. this. But it's all in her own capability, right? They have found in the two days that they've known each other, this very communicative partnership that is dependent on the both of them being capable. Yeah. I love her swinging that axe and <laughs> rescuing him from the bottom of the ship. Well, that leads to another question I have. You know, this movie is famous for a lot of things. It's also famous for the door thing at the end. Everyone is upset about the door. Yeah, it's become this like huge internet <laughs> meme. <laughs> that he didn't fight harder to get on the door. <laughs> but the, but the, related back to what you said, I've always wondered, you know, he gets her on the door. He's right. It would have tipped over if they both went on it. Fine. Ensure her survival. Like, let her get on the door. Great. But then he stays with her. I was just wondering, from someone who was so committed to survival and perseverance and cleverness and resilience, that once he had ensured her survival on the door, why he didn't say, all right, you hang tight. I'm going to go find a barrel or another piece of furniture to hold on to. I'll be right back. Like, why did he give up so fast once he had ensured her survival? He kind of accepts his own death in that moment. And his character had been so counter to that mm -hmm. the whole movie that he does not accept death. He is a fighter with a sense of humor. So I was just sort of wondering, besides the fact that the film dramaturgically needed him to die so she could go off and find agency right. on her own, it just felt a little inconsistent with his own character that he would have just like let himself die. I have absolutely no answer for you. I have no idea. Huh. I always think of you as having the answer to everything. <laughs> so that's unsatisfying. No. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, you'd think that now that Rose had agreed to start this new life with him that he would fight to live it with her. Yeah, I know. Maybe he didn't want to like leave her alone for someone yeah. to come and like push her off the door? Maybe. I mean, all of this is total conjecture because it's not really earned. Like you'd think he'd want to give himself a chance to survive instead of just being like, well, I guess I'm just in the water now because <laughs> I couldn't get on the door. Maybe he falls prey to the same kind of masculinity that like he's a guy, so maybe he'll survive. Maybe. He's been pretty committed to like actively fighting for his own survival though. I know. I don't know. One of the mysterious questions of this movie, James Cameron, if you're listening, this is probably a question you don't get asked very often. <laughs> you, you probably get asked about the door, but not about Jack's response to the door. Also, side note, do you know the story about Neil deGrasse Tyson in this movie? No. <laughs> so there's a shot of Rose looking up at the stars, you know, once she's once she's in the water. And apparently the layout of the stars in the sky was historically inaccurate to what the night sky would have looked like in 1912. Sure. And so Neil deGrasse Tyson being the pretentious doofus he is, I mean, he's very smart, but come on, <laughs> let it go. So he reached out to James Cameron, apparently, this is how the legend goes, and said, great movie, the sky was wrong. And James Cameron was like, thank you. Go fuck yourself. And then in the re-release of the movie, updated it and fixed it. No. <laughs> yes. So now if you watch an updated version of Titanic that isn't like your VHS, the one shot of the sky that she's looking at is historically accurate. It was like the last historically accurate thing he needed to fix. That is so funny and stupid. <laughs> But I love it. I yeah. love that commitment to accuracy. Yeah, I do too. But that moment aside, it's, you know, it's the most devastating moment of the film. I'll never let go, Jack. And then she lets go and he sinks to the bottom of the ocean. She lets go to not let go. Right. She lets go of him physically to not let go of the promise that she's going to fight to survive. Right. And Fucking genius. And then we get, to me, one of the most powerful images of the whole movie. The rescue boat is coming back in with a flashlight. They're checking for survivors. Survivors. Her voice is so hoarse that she can't speak. She can't yell out. 
and she swims and the music comes in again. It's so dramatic. And she finds this whistle and she just blows the whistle over and over again. And it's this declaration of life. Talk about someone who at the beginning of the movie was ready to throw herself off the ship. Yeah. And now she's just... Trying to get into a ship from the water. Right. And now she's demanding that she survive. Yeah. And that she lived the life that Jack inspired her to live. Yeah. And there is a moment of temptation, right, for her not to do it, that she doesn't want to let go. She almost lets the boat pass, which I didn't quite realize previously watching this movie that, like, the boat almost keeps going and she misses it. She has to sort of make this last-ditch effort to be like, okay, I have to let go of his body so I can go save myself. Like, she almost misses that opportunity. And then we transition back to Old Rose and we still hear the sound of this whistle. It has stayed in her ears all this time. Right. I forgot to mention an earlier transition, which is also one of my favorites in the movie, when Kate Winslet's face transforms into Gloria Stewart's face. Yeah, their eyes are the same. It's done so gorgeously and perfectly. I mean, there's all of these visual references to ghosts, right? That she she is a ghost of her former self. Right. That the old ghost of herself is haunting her. And Old Rose says, he saved me. In every way, a person can be saved. Which... I mean, the feminist in me is like, no, you didn't. You saved him. And you saved yourself. Like, did you learn nothing? (laughs) And I think that what she's really saying is that he inspired her to save herself. Yeah, amen. And related to her saving herself, can we just pause for a second and acknowledge the fact that when she gets to Ellis Island and she gives a new name, she completely changes her identity and she lets everyone in her life think that Rose DeWipicator died. Yeah. And she just like starts a new life as an actor. I just don't think I ever gave that detail enough attention that that's like fucking intense and crazy that she just truly changes identities. She really saw herself as a prisoner. Yeah. And she needed to escape her family in order to live, in order to survive. Totally. It's just pretty intense that her mom never knew she survived, you know? Like, that's... Like, if you take out all of the metaphor... Like, if you take out all of the dramaturgical themes of this movie and you just boil it down to an individual relationship between a mother and a daughter, that's really heavy to put that burden on your mother. Yeah. I mean, maybe she told her later, right? Maybe she, like, showed up one day and was like, I'm Rose Dawson now. Nice to meet you. You know? Who knows? So she throws the necklace into the ocean, which, by the way, they make very clear is incredibly expensive. (laughs) And when she was a struggling actor in New York, she never cashed in on, right? She had this extremely valuable thing that she just didn't do anything with, which is very funny and satisfying. I wonder, though, if they're going to throw it back in the ocean, Brock and his team are nautical explorers. Like, are they not going to find it now? Now now that she's thrown it in and, like, given it to them, basically? I've had that thought before, too. I don't know. No, the ocean is super vast. I sort of talked myself out of that by thinking that they are officially ending this expedition now. Mm. Like, they're not going to go back down because they know it's not going to be there. So they're not going to do any more exploring to find it. I feel like they also know that it's disrespectful now. They've, like, learned that through the course of the movie. You know, it's a fairly small part Bill Paxton ultimately has, even though you start the movie thinking he's the protagonist. But the moment at the end when he says, I never got it, I never let it in. I mean, it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And he throws the cigar over, and he just gives up on his dreams of finding the necklace. So we hear exposition that she moves to New York, she becomes an actor, she marries again. 
again, right? And she mm-hmm. has this whole family. She has a granddaughter. Who takes care of her and loves her. And to fill in the 84 years between the end of the flashback and the beginning of the modern day world where we see Gloria Stewart playing Rose, there's 84 years in the middle, right? That you think goes untouched, unexplored. Except this movie is so good. What's filled in the middle there is the theme song, is the lyrics to My Heart Will Go On. That song functions like songs in musical theater, where it fills in emotional gaps in the plot, Mm. where we actually see character development. If you think of that song as being the really quick exposition between the end of the flashback to the beginning of the modern day, that song does a lot of heavy lifting in terms of character development. And if you think of the photographs as the visual aid to that song, that's the 84 years that Rose spent in the middle. That song is so powerful to me, not just because Celine Dion is the greatest singer that ever lived, (laughs) but because those lyrics specifically tie into Rose's arc. And I think it's so powerful to end on that image of all of her photographs, her lifetime of memories that she went horseback riding, she was an actress. She rode a plane. She traveled. (laughs) She lived this full, full life. We don't end with Brock and the lesson that he learned from her. We end with Rose because this is her story. I'm so grateful that this story of the Titanic was given the dignity of being told through the eyes of a woman. Mm. I think it would be a lesser movie if it was told through the eyes of a man because then these themes of masculinity wouldn't have been covered nearly as interestingly. Totally. The ship herself is <laughs> always referenced with this feminine pronoun. Yeah. It's possessed and controlled in such the same way as Rose is. Mm. It's... Exploited, pushed too far. Yeah. It's this thing that is full of power and capability that is just underestimated by these men. Mm, That's really interesting. So she goes in to sleep and she has this vision. It reminded me of a line that she says earlier where she doesn't even have a picture of Jack. He exists now only in my memory. And that made a beautiful parallel in my head to the movie Coco, which is the greatest movie ever made. I know we say that about a lot of movies, but... Okay. Go with me. Coco is a totally valid parallel right now. <laughs> the whole theme, the dramaturgical rules in Coco is you're only around in the afterworld if people remember you on Earth. Uh-huh. Jack is alive because Rose remembers him. Jack is always around. He's there waiting for her at the clock, right? All of them. We just spent all this time talking about the extras, the supporting cast, the ensemble of this movie. They're all there because Rose keeps them alive in her memories. And because the life she lives is directly related to the impact that those characters had on her. She's able to finally accept death. It's just a really satisfying ending. I mean, I think she dies. A lot of people think that Mm -hmm. she just has this dream every night, that she returns to the Titanic every night in her sleep and gets to be with Jack and all of the people that died. I mean, every night in my dreams. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's either that or she's finally at peace with her long life. She's finally able to go back to the Titanic and die to be with Jack forever. I love that her dream is all of the characters on the ship, the higher class, the lower class, the crew of the ship, they're all in this ballroom together and they applaud her relationship with Jack. Mm-hmm. They burst into applause when they kiss. Yeah, It's this dream of hers that this class system that was responsible 
responsible for the destruction of the ship Mm. was demolished and that two people who love each other could be together. Absolutely. And we're saying all this in a very sort of analytical way, but we should also make it very clear that for a lot of people at this point in the movie, we are absolute emotional wrecks and we are (laughs) sobbing our eyes out, right? Like we're saying all this in a pretty like intellectual way. Let's acknowledge that we are babbling idiots at this point, crying. Me and my mom. Me and like everyone I've ever watched this movie with, I think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This was a big ass movie, Sam. We covered it. We did it. Yeah. Cool. It's a lot of movie. How do you feel? I'm tired. Oh, that's good. (laughs) I'm drained. I'm cold, Jack. I love this movie. I love it. Excellent choice. I'm Merry Christmas. <laughs> right? Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. And a happy new year. <sighs> so what's going on for our next episode? The first episode of the new year. 2019, we're going to start off with a bang. <clears throat> what's our bang? What's going to be the bang? Her name is Katniss Everdeen, <laughs> and she is the Mockingjay. <laughs> we're having... A Hunger Games marathon, and you better get ready. (laughs) All four movies of The Hunger Games. The Hunger Games, Catching Fire, and Mockingjay Parts 1 and 2. Oh my god, so ready. The name of our episode is Remember Who the Real Enemy Is, which I think is the most powerful theme of that entire series. And quite relevant to our lives right now. Amen. I'm excited about this trend we've just sort of wandered into where this episode was just Titanic and next episode will just be this like big franchise. And then we'll get back into our rhythm of three movies being interwoven. But I kind of like this idea that we're giving more space for movies that frankly take up more space. Right. This is sort of our winter vacation. This is our blockbuster series. Sure. (laughs) This is of course the season of giving and we don't ask a lot of our listeners (laughs) We love you too much, but if you are in the mood to give back this season, there is nothing more valuable to us than your responses, your reviews, and of course sharing this podcast with your friends and family. And it's not for the sake of getting likes on social media, it is simply because we love what we do, we love each other, we love these movies, and we just want to grow this community and share it with more people. So Happy New Year! Yes. We'll meet you in 2019! Oh my god, see you in 2019! Bye! Feminist Popcorn is produced and hosted by Samantha Rare and Elizabeth Frankel. Our theme music is by Barrett Riggins. Our cover art is by Hannah Perry. Keep up with us on Instagram and Facebook at Feminist Popcorn. Tweet us at official underscore fempop. And email us your voicemails at feministpopcorn at gmail.com. You can find descriptions and links to all of our movies on feministpopcorn.com. And don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday. Sam, the movie's starting. Pass the popcorn. Although I have heard a really funny joke that Jack Dawson is like the The ideal lesbian. lesbian. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Amen. Okay.